0: All right, so we're in Mark 6. This is a transition text. We're moving from this climactic moment of the rejection of Jesus at Nazareth, the questioning faith of the hometown boys, into now the sending faith, faith in action, faith not merely on the couch with potato chips, but the exercised faith of the disciples, the 12 being sent out in And so this text is for us really a tale of two stories, a tale of two faiths, the great joy and power and action and execution of belief from the heart and the disastrous doubt and unbelief of those who would reject the Lord. Mark is constantly putting things for us in contrast. He is a master writer and teacher. This is an important rhetorical device in Mark's gospel. Choose this day whom you will serve. (laughs) Choose this day who you will believe because everybody believes something. You got to serve somebody, said Jesus and then Bob Dylan. (laughs) Everybody puts their hope and their trust in someone or in something. And I was thinking about the reality of this fact, this contrast, this choice for us. Whom will we serve? Whom will we love and adore and trust and cling to and believe in light of just everything going on in the world? Sure, most of you have seen the news about what happened in Buffalo, New York. Yesterday, you know probably that most of my family is from Buffalo. My parents were born in Buffalo and it just kind of hits different when it's that close to home the tragedy of this most recent mass shooting and it raises the question what do you have to say to anyone about jesus what do you little you have to say to anyone about jesus in light of the brokenness the brokenness of this world but it's not merely the tragedy it's also the blessing because you may have a nice house that's great a cool car I like cars, so I'm into that. You may have a sport coat that's this nice. I've had it since middle school and it's still kicking. It's got a little uh, lady makeup on it, but it works. But that's not what you have to give to people about Jesus either. The tragedy or the blessing, the successes, even the good successes of your own life. What you have to give in your story and your faith and belief and trust is simply and fully and only the faithfulness of God to you. On your best day and on your worst day. Thank you, Jesus, that you might be coming in this morning full of faith. Rejoice with those who rejoice. We're not trying to be a downer here. If you're having a great day, praise the Lord. Pour that out on us. Encourage us. But you might have barely gotten here today. Your life may be on a thread your faith may be as small as a mustard seed, and here is the good news for you and for me. It is not the quantity of our faith, but the perfection of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ already accomplished, which means we can hear these two stories in Mark and flee the consequences of rejection and go with Jesus to become those people that God has called us to be here in Santa Fe. Not despising the unbelief, not despising the city, not wagging our finger at all those sinners out there, but instead doing what Jesus does, moving toward the fire, moving toward the brokenness by grace through faith. Now that is a hopeful thing. That's a deep purpose in life. That's a reason to get out of bed in the morning. That's a better reason than friends and family and food and money to know who you are in Christ, to know your purpose in Christ. And yet we're human. Deeply human, as one German philosopher said, we are human, all too human. So why is it so hard to believe sometimes, even when we know that God has proven himself faithful in our story? And I was asking myself that question this week, coming and preparing to confess to you that I too oftentimes so tempted to hide in front of you people and say sometimes, but how about oftentimes? Struggle, wrestle, have questions, have doubts. Feel exhausted. It's been, you know, two years plus of this pandemic thing. I think for some of us, the exhaustion is only now catching up with us. Why is it so hard to believe? And perhaps of equal importance, where do we take those things? Can we and do we take them to someone whose arms are open to actually offer help? I think we know the right answer in our head. We know the Sunday school Bible answer. It's Jesus. And yet your prayer life betrays you. Your conscious theology is to know the right thing. Your subconscious theology, your prayer life, the way you move and live and have your being betrays you and betrays me because we so often feel like, nah, God is busy, or He doesn't want to hear it, or He doesn't want to hear it again. The question of doubt isn't simply the the abstract philosophical, you know, uh, freshman year at UNM philosophy 101: Is God real? The question is, is He real for you? Faith can be scary. It can be scary to believe and to trust, even though we all do. So often we think, foolishly, little finite creatures that we are, that our lives are so very much under control. What masters we've become at spinning the plates. You know, look at the Greg Circus and marvel how good we are at holding it all together. What a lie. And yet to walk with Jesus, to know that he is the one who calls, come and follow me. They left everything, even their nets, and followed him. It's scary. If I step out of the boat, will he catch me or will I drown? And yet Mark wants us to see something that's really important. Not only is is faith a, a challenge and can be scary, but unbelief has dire consequences. And so Mark, as he often does, is inviting us to think, to be Christians who think, to use our brains. Faith doesn't begin where reason and logic and science end. To quote St. Augustine, we believe in order to understand. These things work together, faith and reason, for God has proven himself and evidenced himself to us repeatedly. So think We're meant to wrestle with these things, to consider the options, to be pushed up against the horns of the dilemma in Mark chapter 6. Will you choose Jesus or something else? X, Y, Z, yourself, you name it. Mark gives us these two stories. He gives us these two stories to choose, but in the gift of these two stories, he shows us that Jesus' arms are open and welcoming, desiring for all who believe that he might choose us. One is a story of disastrous doubt, the other one of daring and blossoming faith. In the first narrative here, these first few verses that we read up through uh, verse six, we see a story of disastrous doubt, And, and Mark would have us beware of this, beware of it in our own hearts. It always starts in the heart. Here we see the unbelief, Of the home crowd, which at first is sad, then is unjustified and is ultimately cruel. It's cruel to them more than Jesus. It's their loss. He has come, he has come to teach them and call them and love them. And in their skepticism and suspicion, they have no place in their heart to trust him as their Lord. This, of course, does lead to dire consequences which we must consider. So Jesus comes to Nazareth. He comes back to his people. This reminds me of yesterday, all these beautiful lowriders gathering around the plaza, coming from the hills to gather here, back to their pueblo, back to their gente. That is how Jesus would have come in to Nazareth with some fanfare and celebration. He's on his donkey lowrider, and everybody is wondering, who is this guy? What is he about? What's gonna happen here? Now you have to realize that Jesus isn't just coming in with a bunch of fancy words right? He's not wearing a black turtleneck being a consultant. He's done some things. In fact, if you saw that ridiculous horse race last week, you'll have a metaphor that you can relate to. Did anybody watch that? What was the name of the horse? High Crimes, High Finance, Lucky Strike. Rich Strike. Rich Strike won the Kentucky Derby. Did you guys know that? Okay, good. Thank you. (laughs) Let's do this. It's like jazz, people. Help me out here. If you watch that race, it was amazing, right? I mean, he's coming from behind, he's cutting horses. That horse was on something. I think that horse had had a little bit of Christchurch Santa Fe coffee that morning before he got going. Now, if this horse wins the next two big races, which are called the something and then the other one in New York, he will. that'll be a big deal. This is called the triple crown if he wins all three in one year. This is what Jesus is coming off of. He's just won the triple crown. Remember, he calmed the storm He has demonstrated his cosmic power over nature. And then to demonstrate his power and sovereignty and kingship and authority over the devil and all of his demonic minions, he cast the legion out of the demoniac, restoring and resurrecting that man's life and making him whole. And thirdly, last week he goes to the home of a little girl as he's being mocked and chided, walks into her bedroom and says, sweetheart, it's time to wake up and raises her from the dead. So we're meant to wonder in Mark's gospel, how could a man who brings to bear on earth the power of the new heavens and the new earth so quickly become the object of insult, suspicion, and novelty? And what I want to say here, I think it's deeply important in this text, folks, is that evidence is not the problem. Evidence is not the problem. Romans chapter one is clear. God has made himself known in the world. He's made himself known in creation. From the stars above to the earth below to the complexity of a single cell, God has made himself known to what is required and necessary for the foundations of any good moral theory to the fact that he knows you by name and loves you and you could tell me stories of ways that God has shown up because you know it had to be in because it couldn't be anything else. Evidence is not the problem here. They have seen, this is empirical, they have seen and heard and watched and tasted and smelled the words and works that Jesus has already done. The problem is the hearts. I like how Scott Sauls puts this. People don't reject the Bible because it contradicts itself. This is true, and if you're struggling with that, I get that. I have a degree in philosophy, let's go have coffee. Let me take you out for coffee and let's just talk. Because there really are good, rational, logical reasons and answers for this stuff, even where there are apparent contradictions. The real reason that people reject the Bible isn't because it contradicts itself. They reject it because it contradicts them. That's what's most deeply at work, as Paul tells us in Romans 1, 2, and 3. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness because we don't want to be under the authority, the covenant authority of the Lord, who is both Lord and servant, which means we need to bow the knee. And on my good days, I don't just like that. I like to talk about it and get paid to do so. And on my bad days, I don't. On my bad days, I see it in there. God's working it out, working out our salvation in fear and trembling. So Jesus' disciples are with him. They follow him. Good disciples, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. This crowd begins to gather, and they're asking this question. Who is this guy from our town that claims to be a rabbi? They are curious, deeply curious. Who is he, and why is he here? Well, Jesus is merciful, and he doesn't leave them guessing. Instead, He goes into the synagogue, that is the place of gathering for God's Jewish people outside of Jerusalem, to teach. And there's something I love about Jesus here. He is not some sort of privatized, tiny little special group cult leader, esoteric religious guy, where you have to get in the club, learn the handshake, put on the hat, and then when you get up 25 levels of being, you'll finally know the secret. This is all being done in public for everyone to see because Jesus' goal is to come and say, don't make God in your image. Let me tell you who he really is and how deeply he loves you and what he's going to do to bring his love to you. So he comes with authority. Who is this guy who teaches with such authority? Of course, he explains to them the truth from God's word, but it's a demonstration of his mercy and his care. Even in his hometown, Jesus' posture is to lovingly show them, Behold your God. It's not what you expected. It's not what you would have done. It doesn't align easily with human conditions of power and pretense. It's so much better. So, Mark tells us that as he begins to teach, people are astonished. Now, this is a big word in the original language. In the Greek, it's meant to to really stop the reader in their tracks. Folks can't believe it. Their minds are blown. The best translation for the word astonished from the original Greek is the word astonished. And that's because Greek scholars, you know, translated the English Standard Version. They're astonished. Who is this guy? It reminds us of what C.S. Lewis said, and I think this is good because you've got to reckon with this. Jesus is crazy. You need to understand if he showed up into this place, into our lives, do you really think, oh, I'd be so happy to see him? He would be weird. He would be different than us. He would be saying, hey, I love you, but here's like 23 traditions of men that you have going on. That needs to go. Here's legalism. That needs to go. I understand that you people all have your 27 preferences. That needs to go. And so Lewis is right when he says, look, he's either a liar for money, which that's a fail. I mean, run three years of a multi-level marketing scheme and then get crucified. No, thank you. He's either a liar or he's a lunatic. He's just crazy. Drunk with power as he was being, you know, persecuted and mocked. Or he's the Lord. To the extent that that reflects on our trust, our belief, our faith. Lewis puts it this way. Christianity, if it's false, is really of no importance. And if true, it is for you and me of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. And this is the word that Jesus preaches to his hometown. That this isn't a hobby. This isn't something I do a couple hours a week. This is the kingdom of God, a new polis, a new political reality of God's kingdom breaking in to every tribe and tongue and nation under earth. In this way, Mark pushes for us the choice further. Who will you trust? Who will you believe? They start off like your fifth grade teacher who, what, when, where, and why. They start off with some good questions. Where did this guy get these powers? What has he been doing, and how does he do it? And yet, in our text, their unbelief, their heart, which presupposes their own sovereignty, which assumes their own authority, moves them from honest questions to suspicion and even sarcasm. Why? I mean, come on, you guys. Just close your eyes and imagine if you were there, for goodness sake. He grew up in Nazareth. (laughs) You know, for 30 years, he grew up there running around, runny nose, boogers, bathroom stops, and then he became the town handyman, janitor, carpenter. Are you kidding me? This guy? Oh, and it's worse than that. It's implied in the text. Not only do we know this guy, you know, who got in trouble for sneaking snacks out of the synagogue Bible study when he was in third grade, but we know his mom. Y'all know about Mary. Remember? That girl who got knocked up by Joseph, but he was cool about it, and, you know, they decided to get married anyway and then fled to Egypt to avoid the shame for a little while. That's the tone of where these questions go and lead. It is offensive. We know this guy. This can't be him. He's known to us, but he's known as a nobody. And here's, here's the triple threat of their skepticism. In those days, if you were going to be a, a rabbi, you had to be trained by a rabbi. It's not like today where some of y'all, like me, have gone online and, you know, in any given month, you get a PhD in global politics you know, virology and constitutional law. And then you share all your wealth of knowledge with everybody on social media. Now, in these days, you actually had to like be with a real rabbi for a really long time. You had to go to yeshiva. You had to go to these Hebrew schools. You had to have pedigree. You had to be in Jerusalem. This took time. It took money. It took the investment of the community. Not the janitor. It's almost as if they're saying, How dare you, Jesus? And if you don't feel a little of that, you're not feeling Jesus. If you and I don't feel a little, how, what? This is not how things work, man. Things work based on covenant do this and you will succeed, do it not and you will die. Hard work, intestinal fortitude, gumption. Sadly, they take offense. That's the choice they make. They're not passive. They're not victims. They take upon themselves the offense of Christ. And the Greek translation here is really good. It's really the idea of being scandalized. They are scandalized by this king and his kingdom. Why? Because God doesn't fit in their box. And so what could have been great faith and great trust and great wonders and works turns to the hardness of heart in unbelief. They take offense because God does not fit in their box. And it's as if Mark is asking you and me, are you trying to put God in your box? Are you trying to have them all figured out in your way, in your world, in your timing? Or will you trust him? Mark shows us the awful consequences of their faithlessness. First, they are rebuked. Jesus takes the place of a prophet speaks the word, rebukes these people. He leaves them without his wonders. And the translation here is a little bit odd, but it's not because he can't do whatever he wants to do at any time. It's because you're not a robot. And so God's not going to coerce you into stuff. You're not a robot. And so he's not going to force you to trust him and believe in it. It's a relationship of love. And although it's subtle, don't miss the end of verse 6. And he went away. <laughs> he went about among the villages teaching. It's strange to say, but I think here we get, you know, in life we get these little, these little tastes of heaven on earth where we see and know that yeah, it's not yet. It's still a broken world. We're not yet in heaven, but it's now. We get these little tastes and glimpses of now, heaven on earth. In a sense, this is a little taste of hell on earth. You don't want me? Okay. (laughs) If hell is, in one sense, deeply separation from the power and the presence of God as a gracious God, and present with God in his full and deserved justice, then this is a little picture of that. The offer is free and it is rejected and no one was coerced and so these people in their unbelief sadly they get what they desired now to apply this I just want to say a few things the first is that it's not a sin to doubt there's a book in the Bible that should also scandalize you a little bit the Bible's not PG did you know that? It's called the Psalms. It's 150 songs that these these Jewish people are wild, okay? That they didn't just sing these, you know, in their bathroom quietly. They sang them together, corporately, loudly. These guys know how to party. Because in the Psalms, we are invited into the worship of Yahweh through our questions, through our doubts, we're invited to come to God no matter what we're thinking or feeling and to know He's secure. Actually, you're not. You're fearful. You're wondering. You're questioning. God knows exactly who He is. He can handle you. He can handle you on your best day and your worst. So we are to doubt, but as many folks have said, we also need to doubt our doubts. We need to doubt our doubts, as doubt is not a sin, but the question is, where is it coming from, a heart of belief or not? Questions are good. Christians, we should be the ones asking these questions. We need to not be afraid of our friends and neighbors and people we love who have hard questions. And if you don't know, just be humble enough to say, I don't know, and then let's work on it. Questions are good, but we are to ask in faith. Because what Mark is telling us here is that to reject Jesus ultimately ends in disaster. Now, this is a bold claim. I understand that. So be good Bereans. Go check the scriptures. Test the spirits. It's a bold claim, but I feel somewhat justified in saying this now in 2022 in this postmodern world we live in, where what's really most true is how I feel about myself when I'm feeling good in any given moment. We throw away enough food in this country every year to feed the whole world. So I'm convinced that the problem is not more education. The problem is not more money. The problem is not more resources. The problem actually must go deeper than that. It must be a deep problem of the heart. And what Mark is commending to us is that wars and rumors of wars and all that's going on in the world in Ukraine and Buffalo, New York, this is all a result ultimately of human beings saying, I am God. I'm going to do it my way. This is the very thing that happens when man declares that man is God, and it is the very thing that the God man, Jesus Christ, has come to earth to undo. And so disastrous doubt ends. It ends logically on the trajectory that it was bound to follow. And Mark gives us this second story of true faith, of disciples being sent out in twos, going together, this ordinary ramshackle group of hooligans, going out dependent. They're they're told to not really take anything with them. Just go and believe and I'll give you everything you need. Go and trust me and I will provide for you. Do you see how freeing this is? Like if you have anything to say to anyone about Jesus, in light of your blessings, because some of you look okay, and in light of the brokenness of the world, If you have anything to say, this is the gift of God to us. It's not on you. You don't need to have the right words. You don't need to have the best arguments. You just need to go and have your story and my faithfulness in your story be on display. And trust me, I'll provide everything you need. So this second story is, is juxtaposed to the rejection and the unbelief and the disaster. But not in some heroic way. Just in the sense that God uses these ordinary guys with nothing to be sent out and do works and wonders and miracles in His name because it's His gift and it's His power. And that's why the key to this whole text, by the way, the key to the entire text, the two stories, the linchpin is in verse 7 and He called. Faith is a gift. If you grew up not hearing this, I'm sorry. (laughs) Faith is a gift. It is not your ability to have a a more robust intellectual assent to the right propositions about God in the Bible. It is not an exercise deeply of your volition and the intensity of your will. It is not in any moment the feeling and fervor and fire of your affections. It is a gift of God. And this is why when I get people who come to me and go, Man, I'm, in this tone, I'm struggling. I'm doubting. I have questions, man. I've been through some hard stuff. I'm going through some hard stuff. I'm barely hanging on. And I'm just, I'm wondering, I mean, am I, am I even a Christian? Do you know what I say to them? Boldly and emphatically, yes, you are. Because the very fact that you're asking that question in that way with a mustard seed of faith proves that you are fully connected to all the gifts and mercy and grace and benefits of God through Christ Jesus. Let me explain it this way. The Shorter Catechism, question 86. Do not take offense, brothers and sisters, to the beauty of this. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. It's a gift of God given to you that saves you. That's why it is not the quantity of your faith that saves you, your subjective experience of your faith. Sometimes I like to talk about muscles because I have exactly four of them. Faith, imagine as a muscle on your arm. Whether you have huge muscles like me or small muscles, that muscle is an instrument to deliver to you The full and complete work of Christ, it is finished, it is given to you. So do you you see what I'm getting at here? It's not the subjective quantity or quality of your faith as you may experience it on any given day, but it is the perfect object of your faith. Jesus, who saves you completely, even if your faith is weak. I can see we're going to have to have another sermon on this one. But folks, what I want, I want, what I want you to hear in this is not, oh, faith doesn't matter. Oh, I can have weak faith. No. Let us grow in the grace of God. Let us perfect our baptism. Let us be conformed into the image of Christ. Let us have victory in what it means to be sons and daughters of the King. But do you understand that these disciples, they're being sent. They're being empowered. It was all because they were called. Because faith in Jesus Christ is a saving Grace, and even if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, the tiniest muscle, that is enough for the object of your faith to finish in you the good work that he has started. You may struggle with all the Romans 1 tendencies. Doubts, questions, fears. Man, you got stuff that the Lord is excavating up out of your heart. A lot of it you don't want to see. A lot of it you can't even see. A lot of it you won't see until heaven. It's painful, things in your life that have happened, relationships that are broken. Jesus knows. He knows the questions. He knows the doubt. And he moves toward you. This is why we are told emphatically in God's word that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that the world through him might be saved. He didn't come to judge and condemn the world, but to save it. And this is our story as well. I love this quote from Sinclair Ferguson. My security as a Christian does not reside in the strength of my faith, but in the indestructibility of my faithful Savior. Some of y'all are looking for your next tattoo. You're welcome. I'm serious. This one should go on the doorpost of your head. It should go on your fridge. My security as a Christian, weekdays, great days, all days, my security as a Christian does not reside in the strength of my own perception, of my subjective experience, of my faith, but in the indestructibility of my faithful Savior. That's the story we have to tell. Let's go and let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. We humbly receive the warning. The warning is mercy. We receive the warning as we come to the table that those, Jesus, who rejected you to their own great loss, lost you. And that those who reject the disciples you sent in judgment, By two witnesses, the dust was wiped from their feet. And so we're coming today with faith sometimes as small as a mustard seed, knowing that even that small faith is a gift from you, asking you to feed us and nourish us and meet us here at your table of faithfulness. What a picture of your faithfulness, Lord, that we come to this table every week, not having prepared the food, not having got this table ready, but instead we come as those to receive. What is faith in Jesus Christ? A saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon you alone, Jesus, as you were offered to us freely in the gospel. So Lord, would you draw us here? And even in our doubts, would you make your love to us as real as the bread on our tongue and the juice in our mouth? Would you remind us even in our doubts that that is how near to us you are, That even if we come in, Lord, if we've got the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost of our hearts, whether we come in that house with great faith or we barely get there, with the weakest of faith, to be in the house is to be in the house. To be covered, to be forgiven, to be passed over, to be redeemed, to have your righteousness, and to be raised up for certain on the last day. Make that true to us now as we come to this beautiful, tasteable picture of the gospel.